Hello and welcome to the Every Woman podcast. I'm Anna, editor of Every Woman, and every month we'll be bringing you the stories, insights and opinions of inspiring people in business on a wide range of topics, asking the questions you want the answers to and doubtless prompting some more in the process. Today we're talking to Melanie Welsh and Rachel Clark, founding partners of communication strategy practice Strathouse, about how they create an inclusive environment for their team, breaking the cycle of unconscious bias in communication, and why challenging microaggressions is a crucial part of that. So welcome, Melanie and Rachel. Hello. Hello. (laughs) So let's start with a bit of background. So obviously you're both very passionate about creating inclusive environments, innovating the workplace or perhaps even creating a lack of workplace, uh, changing it all for the better. So tell me why. Why is this a focus for you? So both of us are uh, a background in marketing agencies, communication agencies, and that industry has some issues, has issues with gender, has issues with with age. And when we um, left um, where we were working previously, we decided that we wanted to start our own business and to create something from the start that was very different. So taking apart things that that, uh, made the world, uh, made our environment not pleasant and put in place certain processes and ways of working to try and set up a culture that re- removed some of the negativity, some of the hassles, some of the having to go into central London every day, a different way of working around that. We were also really strongly of the opinion that that was actually going to be more efficient anyway. Mm. As in creating a, a, an environment that people can flourish in and can work in yeah. is a strong business case. We saw a lot of um, time being spent on on repetitive tasks. We saw people sort of working more slowly because over time you get worn out. Um, you know, we just felt that we could do things more effectively. And it's also part of an industry where you charge by time. So there is no real driver to, to, to be rapid in some of the areas. So by pro- providing an environment where we let people have more time for themselves and deliver on their own timeline to actually get more efficient and get things back to us quicker. So obviously there's a twofold purpose, a uh, twofold thing about that. There's, As you say, there's a sort of client-facing thing. How do you meet all your business objectives while also allowing people to work in a new way? But there's also the work-life balance, for want of a better way of, of, of putting it, uh, about how people integrate work with their lives. And I understand you've got some pretty progressive policies on that as well. There's a 180-day maximum that people can work for Strathouse in a year. Is that right? That is our ambition, yeah, which we've achieved so far. And where does that come from? Tell me the rationale. And We sort of said, what's working a four-day week equivalent if we could do that? But it's a four-day week based on the fact that we don't necessarily have an office and we need to be flexible around that. So we did the calculations and came up to 180 days. Um, it doesn't mean the way it works is it's not sort of a solid, you will work 180 days and then you'll have the rest of the time off. Mm. What we're trying to do is allow flexibility in life. So we sort of split the, the, the time off into three batches. There's the, you must have this, we'll make you have this and we'll make you have it as long as possible. So three or four weeks as a good break in a year mm-hmm. would be great. And, and the team are taking advantage of that. Um, another batch of days that we're trying to say have at least a week off at a, at a time, again, to give you a good break. 
And the rest, the other batch, which is probably about 20 days worth, is the idea of that, because you're not in office and we're not making you clock in and clock out. If you want to go, if it's a nice day and you want to go and walk along the river or go to a museum or go go and do something different, that's that's fine and flexible and you can do that. Um, it, it requires us to work with people who are responsible and dedicated to delivering on time and then managing their own time so that they can free up the time to go and do something different. And so far, the the implication is that it's really working with the team. They they enjoy the the opportunities to not have to do nine to five in an office. Even if they're working in the client office, they sometimes do half days or shorter days because they've got the ability to be flexible. But you get the results. We still get the results. We've the... not had any issues at all so far, either with people working directly for us who are employing or people who are coming in as a as a, a sort of freelance contractor. We we offer the same opportunities for that. So presuming that this this flexibility was something that was really lacking in your previous incarnations. <laughs> Very it's, much yeah. So. Because it's done by timesheets. You need to do your timesheets every week. You need to put in the hours every week. And if you can't ju- justify what that you're not spending your 37 and a half hours or your 40 hours or whatever the number of hours there are, then, then questions are starting to ask. We only timesheet for jobs which require us to invoice by time. Other jobs we invoice direct. Um, we check in with everybody. We know where people are, but we're not making sure that they're tracking all of those hours. Mm. We have to record if you like, holidays legally, and then the rest of the time is a lot more flexible and is done, mainly on a trust basis. So we do know that if we grow, and we have intent to grow a little, but not too big, that we need to get the right people into the team. Mm, mm. So time is a metric. It's a bit old fashioned then, do we think? In the, in the workplaces of the future, we should be looking out for results, trust economy, you know, are, are these things that you think are essential? And why are more businesses not starting to do this? Or are they? I don't think, you know, we haven't seen that many doing this yet. We think that in the future, people will need to, you know, because when you look at the sort of the mechanisation of tasks that's going to be brought in through AI uh, and things like that, it is going to be the the more abstract roles that remain for humans. Uh, yeah, mm. and in those situations, you know, so our job, we're all strategists. We're, you know, we're what the industry call, calls planners. And a lot of the time over the years, you, you're able to know when you look at a task, how long it's going to take. But every week, there's something that, that throws you. So that's why Rachel and I have been running a team together for, for years now, uh, for other people and now for ourselves. Uh, and we've always tried to focus on meeting the deliverables, the deadlines and, um, effort rather than the time you spend. Yeah. And especially with the way society's changing, where potentially you've got more and more people acting in care roles, whether mm. for, for elder generations or younger generations, allowing that flexibility for everybody. It's not just mothers with young children, which is often seen as the, the target place for flexible working. We think everybody should have that opportunity both to either work within a care environment, do self-improvement, um, one of our team members is working on on a side project and doing doing new things, and it's all about that sort of flexibility and responsibility to deliver what you've committed to deliver, but not having them clock in, clock out, which mm. is the mechanised version of of industry. That's mm. not within the within in effect what is a brain industry. We rely on how we what we think and what, and what information we bring to an environment. It's not a clock in, clock out environment. I mean that kind of presenteeism is it's a very 
macho way of working, isn't it? It's a sort of, I will control you. <laughs> it is not lost on us that we have worked in a very uh, male-dominated industry and that it does have a number of approaches that are quite patriarchal. <clears throat> it, truthfully, though, it's actually a little bit more complex than that. I mean, some of it's legacy. It's just the way things have always been done. Mm. Uh, you, know, you know, don't get me wrong. There are some incredibly well-intentioned people running communications companies, uh, you know, and they're all trying their best to make life better. It's just that, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, there are other things that are completely beyond their control, you know, so, uh, so pitching, for example, I, I, in our industry, um, there's a thing called pitching, which means that you have to, uh, you know, you, you get asked, uh, you know, to, um, to volunteer some work by a client in order to then win the account. Now, we have made a decision in order to facilitate the 180 days approach that we don't pitch. Uh, because our experience uh, over the last, you know, collect combined decades has been that, <clears throat> that pitching has to come out of your employee's spare time. Ah, interesting. Because, you know, if you think about the way the business model works, you know, all you do as an agency is you charge for people's time. You know, so, uh, you know, the, the client looks at uh, the project and you say, yeah, it's going to be so many days for this, so many days for that. And therefore, we're going to charge you X number of days in total. <clears throat> Where's the spare time to do the pitching? Mm. So how do you get past that then? Uh, <laughs> how do you win new business if, if you're not pitching? Uh, oh, well, uh, you know, I mean, don't even. OK, so to be clear, we are very small. Um, we've also been incredibly lucky. We started with three founding clients, Adidas, Unilever and WPP, who are our big clients and were able to make the decision to employ us, you know, without, you know, sort of needing to justify to their colleagues why they were doing that. Mm. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of scaling, I mean, I don't know what your plan is for scaling. How will you, how will that play out we're, we're getting work clients. organically through through Amazing. through contacts and, yeah. and that's what's one of the things and, and even if we say we don't pitch we still do proposals we still have to yeah. present what we could do and work through that but we're not doing competitive pitches we're not sitting in with other agencies other similar things everybody bringing their ideas and and having it as, as a beauty show yeah which is what it is yeah um sometimes clients say no but we know that we've left them with a good impression because we've given them some good work to start off with. So mm. we don't competitively pitch. We do put out proposals. We do chase work. We do all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's another way in, in, in which you create an environment where people don't feel taken for granted, I imagine. Um, yeah, and where they don't feel like we've recruited them into a cult. Uh, you know, one of the other things that is <laughs> can be quite damaging about pitch culture is that Whilst a pitch is going on, there is a, a room, a pitch room, uh, and everyone is encouraged to be in the building. 24 often, hours a day. 24 hours a day, often mm. seven days a week. Um, now, that is not, that does not support anyone who's got other caring responsibilities, be that having a family, be that elderly parents, or, you know, just social life. Or a life. Just a social <laughs> being life. Being a human being. Just staying sane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. When you were putting all of these things in play, when you were setting up Strat House, did you sit down and have a sort of strategic conversation. Did you have a strategy? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, yes, I we mean, did. you know, how We're much it was. Yes, I was going to say you didn't, it didn't. You didn't organically bumble along, no. did you? you? You kind of decided what. And it was. It was very conscious to put down and and think about how how we wanted to work, the type of people we wanted to work with, um, the approach we wanted, how much we wanted to grow. So we we've seen 
new agents in the business get get very big very quickly. That's not something we wanted to do. We ha- we know when we want to have a, a cutoff point that says we don't want to employ anybody else. Mm. We thought about how big we want to be. We we do have a sort of value that says if someone offers us a lot of money and it's a lot of money, we'd sell off. But that will be a long time in the future, if ever. And mm. um, mm. the rest of the time, it's about creating an environment that we're happy to work with working and that we believe our employees and our and the other people who work with us as, as specialists are happy to work in as well. So let's talk about the environment. You don't have a physical environment to work in, which in itself is pretty revolutionary. I love the idea. I read that you have mountain time. Mm-hmm. So to get over that always on culture, you put that in place. Mountain time is, uh, well, you but, explain what mountain time is. Well, ma- mountain time is, is basically because I spend some time climbing mountains. <laughs> and when you're on a mountain, there is no phone reception. So by calling certain periods of time when people are off work, mountain time, we treat them as not contactable at all. Yeah. The consequence of that is that when it is some of the more flexible time, when they're sort of just taking a few days or afternoon, they are contactable. But that is all agreed up front. We don't sort of make an assumption that we can call up anybody at any time, especially because we have a shared calendar and everybody can see where everybody is. Mm. So if you block out time and you state you're not contactable, we respect that. And that, again, is talked through and understood across all of the team. And obviously without a physical workplace, but you still have a culture to build, um, you know, you talk about this sort of the, the respecting people's boundaries, but there's also, well, I mean, we, we, you know, I mentioned microaggressions, for example, mm. as one of the ways in which it's very important to be aware of that and, and be able to create an inclusive environment. We'll talk about microaggressions in a second, but how does one create an inclusive environment if you're not actually in the same environment? That's a good question. <laughs> it's one we've been working on. Honestly, you know, in the, so over the last uh, 18 months, we've experimented with a number of different ways of doing it. Some of them have worked, some of them haven't. Uh, so, I mean, unlike, for, we don't use things like Slack, which mm. was we don't have an always on, um, on your computer pinging all yeah. the time. We use a WhatsApp group and we use it for both work and, and a little bit of personal. It's, it, like any, it, this is a relationship mm. between the, the people in the team and any relationship takes work to build. So we share off, um, off work stuff and on work stuff. But a lot of it is just keeping those communication lines open and having, making sure we have regular contacts. Um, lots of phone calls, lots of talks that way, lots of video chat. Mm. At least so you can see. Yeah, um, Mel may, may not like what my kitchen looks like, but she sees a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> just via video call. <laughs> Yeah, we've we found it's a balance. We noticed there are a lot of companies out there that talk about using Slack, and we've tried it working with other collectives. Honestly, it it's not for us because we we found it it oversteps the mark and gets into bombarding with people with too much information and making keeping up with the conversation a mm. job in itself. And mm. that because we and and we hope the people who work for Strat House enjoy their jobs you know we like tackling the challenges that we have been given by our clients and we don't particularly want to be <laughs> you know, we, yeah we Wading enjoy through slack bit. trying to work out yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you know that's why that's why we have to impose mountain time because yeah. actually we're fortunate enough to have jobs that people enjoy uh, and, and so sometimes you have to make people switch off. Gosh. Mel in particular. <laughs> like, Go away. <laughs> yeah, take the phone, throw it away. Yeah. But we, we put in place as well, you know, ways of sharing documents, making sure everything is shared yeah. essentially. Uh, using um, shareable, um, we use Microsoft Office shareable to make sure we can collaborate on documents. And we use that as opposed to Google Docs because our clients who are 
most of them are fairly large companies, use these tools as well. Mm. So it is a way of making sure that we can share stuff, that we can um, work together collaboratively, because you can work on a single document sitting in your own living room or in on your, your co-working space at the same time, talking about it and seeing each other editing it. Mm. We can do that. You don't have to be in the same room. In fact, it's actually far more efficient writing on the thing and talking about it than having two people in a room, one person in front of the, of the mm. computer and the other one talking at them. Mm. So we've got that shared working practice. And the reason that matters is because what we're definitely not is a collection of individuals working on things in isolation. Uh, one of the reasons why we think clients like our work is because we always collaborate on everything that we're making. We find that makes it stronger. So we have had to work out ways to do that. There's a lot of passing things around. Mm. But ultimately, you are working as a team. Mm. As you say, you're not yeah. a sort of disparate collection. No, no, no. And within the team, you have team dynamics and ways of, of interacting with each other. And I am going to talk about microaggressions now. <laughs> <because> <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to. It was something. So I read that you were particularly, uh, this was this was a, a, a very hot topic for you at the moment. And I'm fascinated yeah. to, to dig in more to that because actually it's something I've read quite a lot about recently as well. But for those who don't know, what is a microaggression? We work in the communications industry and we're actually interested in manifestations of unconscious bias um, within that context. So, you know, and microaggressions are a part of that. Um, and our interest in them has developed over the last few years, really, together, hasn't it? Uh, Rachel and I uh, are focused on different areas. You know, so I have a tendency to focus on how unconscious bias affects creative and messaging and storytelling. Whereas Rachel is interested in the impact it has on algorithms and AI. Right. So this has come out of a business context, but then obviously it becomes part of your team dynamic as well. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We have three areas of focus within the company and there, there is one that is about better ways of working. Uh, but there is also another which is about new narratives, about telling new story, mm. new stories in different ways. That's where our interest in microaggressions came from. So microaggressions are a form of unconscious bias then and, and maybe a comment or a Ways, reaction language reaction um things that are, that are often you you say something and in your mind you're saying something that's perfectly normal possibly because you grew up with it you you grew up with people he, saying that around you mm. your many of your colleagues may say that but as a as a consequence what you've said will impact emotionally or intellectually member of your team mm. because what you've said could be regarded as an insult mm -hmm. could be regarded as, as not taking into account who they are um, or what they want to do or mm. what they expect you to behave like so microaggressions are often multiple levels of things that as an individual you're often not even aware that you're saying something that will impact other people around you yeah, they're expressions of unconscious prejudice. So they betray your, you know, your unspoken attitudes about what a person or a situation should be. The difficulty with them is that they often come across in a positive way. So they're incredibly difficult to tackle. And the other thing that matters about them is that there are a lot of them. You know, it's almost as if. Give me a positive example. Uh, a positive example of a microaggression. Well, um, You're a great podcaster for a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most intelligent um, woman I've ever met. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah, uh, it's I've like had that one. Yeah. 
Well, I was going to say, you know, what's the difference between, the, you know, um, a microaggression and an insult? But I think we've answered that. It's, it's, yeah, it's not something you would you would do deliberately in most cases. Yeah, insult is deliberate. Insult is is meant to hurt. Microaggression is because you don't know any better often, and yeah. it is because of your intern- internalization of your expectation of everybody else's. Mm. So microaggression is sort of like the 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 needle point of this big movement around unconscious bias, both in the workplace and the communications industry. Is it, I mean, is this the sort of, you know, this is the really fine tuning, every, it's the everyday sexism is the, you know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in actual fact, you know, so there have been a lot of people studying microaggressions for a long time, you know, the Since the came. 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, Chester was the academic who originally coined the term in relation to race. So we are not claiming to be academics. There are many other people that you should go and read if you, if you want to study this in depth. However, we became interested in it because we think that and, you know, the fact that microaggressions exist is having quite a profound impact on the communications that our industry creates. Uh, and that's how we became interested in it. We work in, a, um, uh, in an industry that is not diverse. There, there are not that many uh, uh, sort of publicly available figures, but those that are and our personal experience show, shows that it isn't diverse. So it, it can be a very microaggressive experience. Uh, and our theory is that because we're all collectively allowing that to go unchecked, it's therefore impossible to stop that seeping into communications. And those communications are, you know, are being created for global campaigns mm-hmm. that are backed by multi-million pound media budgets. Mm-hmm. They go back out into the world, they reinforce all those unconscious biases, and they tell the world it's okay for you to continue with your unconscious bias. Because look... No, this is the these, this is the way things are supposed to be, mm. and so it goes on. That's really interesting. The cycle, and like uh, we mentioned, AI as well. I mean, that's had a, a whole new dimension, <laughs> oh. to the whole new terrifying dimension to it, doesn't it? I mean, the, and driving, <laughs> yeah, the, the yes. coding within AI, and uh, you know, and and often because AI machine learning requires training material. It requires someone to code and it often requires a body of training material. If the training material is based on on what what humans have done before, which in itself has or contains all the microaggressions, contains all the assumptions, then what goes into the the material that the, the, the code tries to understand is in itself biased. Mm. So a great example would be the American um, sentencing tool that courts are using to prov- to assess what um, people who've been convicted of crime should be sentenced to. Mm. That is based on past sentencing stuff that's been done by judges. Now, judges, especially in certain areas of America, have a bias against certain parts of, the, of, of their population. So they over-sentence um, African-Americans, for example, mm. in, in many places, or they over-sentence um, drug convictions mm. and all of those over sentences based on their internal bias then gets code as normal yes the normalizing of, of it is the is the massive danger isn't it can you ever create something without bias are we are we ever without bias yeah yeah so there's a, a, a uh, an academic called Gerald Wing Su, um, who's who is considered to be the global expert on microaggressions uh, and, and his view is that um, no you know the the system exists Unconscious prejudice exists, uh, you know, and, and none of us is free from that. Uh, and, and we think that's fair. We, uh, you know, we're not, the, you know, this isn't about trying to, 
you know, sort of re- you know, remove all unconscious prejudice. You know, Rachel can explain at length why sometimes prejudice, you know, is a, uh, an evolutionary necessity. Mm. What we do think is important is that you know we start to work out ways to examine you know those those views, those unconscious views, and just surface them a little bit, so that we can have conversations that are calm and considered and constructive, in order to then you know sort of you know work out whether the communications that we're creating are you know are going to be right whether they're going to be effective you know and yeah you know that that's our interest in new narratives really i mean uh, yeah, as you say specifically in the communications industry it's about not amplifying them isn't it it's maybe dealing with them internally so that they don't get amplified into a wider stage as you say and then become normalized in society and it's a big piece to kind of disrupt isn't it it's huge you know so one of the analogies that people use a lot is um a ton of feathers Uh, oh that's nice and i think that yeah Yeah. i think it's a really lovely way of conveying how nebulous this can be you know how hard it can be to put your finger on you know what actually is going on whilst at the same time feeling as if this thing has got you surrounded uh you know and as if it's immovable um, I mean, we, I did actually, we, you know, we pulled together um, some some stats because I, I think often when we're talking to people about this, it can be hard to, you know, to think about the impact of it. But, you know, because most people would be running through past communications they've seen and thinking, I don't really remember anything that was that bad. Do you think there's a, do you think there's a sense that for some people they think it's a bit snowflakey? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. So they'll remember things like Dove Visible Care and yeah. Dove Body Wash. They'll remember Gap Kids because they create comment mm. on social channels. Mm. But then a lot of the time people say to me, there's just a few things, you know, generally speaking, things are getting better, aren't they? Mm. Now I don't have, so I think it's important that we take a step up and, you know, up and back. Uh, and the only way we can do that really with, is with numbers, I think. Mm. So. I don't have these figures for race. I only have them for gender, but I hope you'll take the general point. So a couple of years ago, um, there was an agency, JWT, who worked with the Gina Davis Institute and the University of Southern California um, to analyse more than 2,000 films from the Cannes Lion Archive. Now, to put that in context, the Cannes Lion Archive is considered to contain the very best advertising in the world. Mm -hmm. So the most progressive, you would hope. And what they found was as follows. Um, there were twice as many male characters in ads than female characters. Women were 48% more likely to be shown in the kitchen, while men were 50% more likely to be shown at a sporting event. Women in ads were mostly in their 20s, while the men were in their 20s, 30s and 40s. Men were 62% more likely to be shown as smart, and one in three men was shown to have an occupation compared to one in four women. A quarter of ads feature only men, while only 5% of ads only depict women. Men get four times as much screen time as women wow. and speak seven times more than women. Wow. Now, I think if you walked up to someone on the street and, and asked them, what percentage of time do you think women get in communications versus men? I don't think they'd guess that it was anything like that. No. I think they'd go 40-60, wouldn't they? Yeah. Like, we're almost there, but not quite there. But actually, <laughs> we're very far from it. I Yes, that is our concern. Yeah, absolutely. What have you instilled in your team and how does that all work? And if somebody does say something that's considered a microaggression, have you got a way of dealing with that? 
it's about trying to have positive and constructive open conversations. And so there are sort of three practical things that we've tried to put in place, actually, when it comes to running uh, running the company. One is about the principles and beliefs that we have um, and the, you know, and the shared vocabulary that we establish around that, because we think that language can be a really powerful way of either sort of pushing unconscious bias or unpicking it. Mm-hmm. It's about the systems and uh, approaches that we put in place. And it's also about continued training and development. Within that, one of the ways that we try to approach things when we're talking about stuff is just to be really clear with, with all of us and say, well, look, you know, we know the system exists. So we know that no, Rach and I are no freer of unconscious bias no. than anyone else. <laughs> We've just got different ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know them when they come up or do you have to have them pointed out? It's a journey and we're definitely working on it. And I, and I think the work we've done over the last few years has made me uncomfortably aware of some mm. of the stuff that's been baked into me. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the things we've also worked on is that often when it comes to un- unconscious bias and, and if, if these microaggressions are picked up, the reaction in the person who has said it is often defensive. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've worked on is is how to be less defensive, to recognize when we're being picked up for something and not respond defensively or even offensively yeah. and go back, oh, right, because we'd already, we've set up the fact that we will pick up these things and we will look for things to try and remove them. Mm-hmm. And by having that out in front, that this is the environment we're working with, we are trying to get better in our language, how we approach things, how we think about things. And if we don't see that in each other, that we will pick it up. It's not unexpected when it happens. Mm. Yes. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? People don't want to be uncomfortable. But actually, to get past this, you've got to be uncomfortable. If you're not uncomfortable, then, well, you're either perfect or... <laughs> None of us are Mary Poppins. <laughs> no, I mean, it, you know, it is, it is one of those things. And getting past that initial uh, uncomfortable, this, I would imagine, is very much about business culture. Certainly, if you're dealing with teams, you know, it's about being open to saying, well, uh, OK, I got that wrong. And a non non judgmental, non judgmental, because yeah. we, we're all aware that that often you are not. As I said, they're unconscious. Not even where you've said something that may upset somebody, or, or is putting, or is painting somebody in that light. Mm. So, been having it brought up allows you to go back and reflect where that comes from, and that often it's it's buried way deep inside, usually where it comes from, um, and it's that balance of, of what you say and how you interact with people you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis and having that mental um, mental sort of ongoing soundtrack to your brain that mm. says, okay, why am I thinking that? What am I doing? How am I going to change it? And then looking at how much better that makes your work as a result, yes. presumably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that actually is the most important part of it is, you know, it, it, so it is about how we all talk to each other within our company about these things and, and, you know, and, you know, establishing a culture where we can call each other out on, you know, on, uh, on these things. It's also very importantly, uh, about knowing how to bring these things up when we are working with our clients, because that's the bit where it matters. You know, is it, those are the occasions when we're having to, repeatedly flush this stuff out and you know and so you know because I think when I was you know kind of running through those stats you know and I think when people see the occasions where things have gone very wrong in communication you know understandably consumers might be looking at it going how on earth did that get through well it's because creating communications is a process and it's quite a long process 
And at each different stage of that, there will be different people coming in and out. And then if you want to try and weed all of those different things out to get to the point where it isn't, you know, women only talking for, you know, uh, you know, X percentage of the time and applying that to all the other people who have unconscious bias imposed on them, uh, you are going to have to be the person in the room who is there every single time having the conversation, flushing that stuff out. And of course, people often don't want to be if they think that it's going to end up in a defensive mm. or aggressive conversation. And that's how things get through because people are willing to be that person for the really extreme examples. Mm. They'll do it then. But often they'll let people have a couple of wins. So they'll let some of the, you know, sort of like seemingly the less lesser, important That was things. air quoted. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff they'll let through. those things yeah. go through. And then over the course of the process, you can see why by at the end of it, the piece of communication is riddled with microaggressions. Yeah. Because yeah. there is only so much energy you have to have these arguments mm. often. No. Yeah. The emotional label to take people through why you shouldn't do this, why you shouldn't do this again and again, especially if you have a stream of new people in all the time because of the way the process works. Mm. So what's what's the answer? I mean, <laughs> what's the general <laughs> giant answer? No, what's the answer in terms of is it does it come from setting uh, business cultures that that mean that over time this will have to be a less and less of a, a process that you have to guide somebody through or guide a client through? Yes, clearly. I hope it's clear that what we're arguing for is is systemic change, and that is going to take people being able to have open and honest conversations about this. It's about introducing new vocabularies and also in the short term, making sure that they are encouraging far less hierarchical structures because in the short term, if you're going to encourage people to have those challenging conversations, they need to feel that they're going to be able to and they're not going to be shouted down or silenced down. But the, the, there's a opposite to that, which is that actually leading from the top in some of these large organisations works as well. It's it's great having been able to have open and honest conversations with your peers, but often you won't be able to have that unless there's some seniority going, mm. we're not doing this, we shouldn't be having these discussions about are we showing women in ads or what are we doing here? Because we we will doing that. That's our business strategy. Mm. So having cover cover from top and the ability to educate and, and, and coach your teams and your the people who work for you to have these open and honest co conversations and not get defensive if they are challenged. So encouraging people to challenge these think these ways of working, these ways of thinking, these ways of talking. Sorry, and I should have said that the, uh, actually the most important, the first hygiene factor you have to put in place is diversity of teams. Mm -hmm. Getting really bored Across of the board. arguing yeah. with people about this. So I'm just going to quote Keith Weed, who is, was the Unilever CMO. Um, diverse teams perform better. Fact. Creative that actually reflects the world we live in um, performs better. Fact. That is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Melian and Rachel, thank you for joining us. Thank you.